Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the sensory integration realm, we have receptors, we have tactile processing receptors all over our body, but in our mouth as well. And my rule of thumb is a kiddo is not going to be able to tolerate different food textures in their mouth if they're not able to tolerate those different textures in their hands and on their skin first. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. When you were first learning about how babies eat food, did you think that you should cut the foods up really small because it would be safer for them to eat? I did that as a first time mom. I was like, I don't want them to choke on these big pieces of food. But it turns out the smaller pieces of food are actually not ideal for early eaters. So we spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about how babies learn to chew and swallow and interviewing different experts. But another reason why we don't offer the small pieces of food, aside from the fact that they can be a choking hazard from early eaters, is because they can't pick up those small pieces of food if they don't yet have their pincer grasp. So my guest today is here to talk all about the pincer grasp and when can my baby pick up smaller pieces of food. So my guest's name is Rachel Harrington. She is an occupational therapy assistant and she specializes in sensory integration, primitive reflexes, and early intervention. She's the podcast host for a show called All Things Sensory. She shares a lot of simple sensory strategies. She does a lot of work on Instagram at the Sensory Project 208. And today, Rachel's here to teach us a little bit about these different primitive reflexes. So I wanted to call the episode the pincer grasp one because I want you to click in and listen because I know you know what the pincer grasp is, but I know you also have questions about, okay, well, then when can babies start picking up smaller pieces of food? And in our program, we teach that after your baby has been experimenting with foods, generally for about eight weeks. So if you started it at six months of age, by about the eight month mark is when we start introducing combination and multi-textured foods. And then somewhere between the nine and 11 month mark, that's when your baby's going to start developing their pincer grasp. So if they have that combination of the ability to handle combination textured foods and they're able to use their pincer grasp, that's an indicator that it's time and it's okay to make the switch to smaller pieced foods. We don't offer smaller pieced foods to early eaters or certainly older babies if they've never had anything in their mouth except a puree or a thickened liquid like breast milk or formula, we don't move to smaller pieces of food that early. So we're going to have a conversation in this episode about the pincer grasp and how it develops. 
And with no further ado, here is Rachel Harrington teaching about the pincer grasp and when can my baby pick up smaller pieces of food. Thanks for having me. So I love your Instagram account, The Sensory Project 208. I'd love to hear a little bit of your background, what you do professionally. And then also I'm just been curious, like what's the significance of the number 208? So professionally, I'm a certified occupational therapy assistant. I specialize in sensory integration, early intervention, primitive reflex integration. I am a mom of two. I have a a three-year-old on Friday, and then I have a 15-month-old little girl who I did all the baby led weaning with. And yeah, it's a crazy season right now, to say the least. I run two businesses and then I work part-time for another company um, for our podcast and stuff. And then um, I just do education right now, sensory education. I'm not in the clinic right now anymore just because once I had trip, I realized there's just not time right now. So I do miss that, but I'm excited to just be able to teach and be home with my kids and, and do all the things. So the 208, the story behind the 208, it's really exciting. I live in Idaho. And that is the, that's the area code is 208. Oh, and, and when I made my Instagram, like, I don't know, six years ago, you know, it wasn't how it is now. And so I just, the sensory project was taken. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just do sensory project 208. And I like it. There it's it a little bit of intrigue. <laughs> yeah. All right. What's the story with your podcast? All things sensory. I know you share simple sensory strategies and tips. Is it for all ages, babies? Who's your target audience there? Yes, we have been podcasting for uh, five years now, and it is, uh, it's for everyone. It's for parents, it's for therapists, it's for educators. It's just sensory made simple. And we just want to make sure that everyone is realizing that we all have sensory systems. We all need input in some way. Some of us need more input. Some of us need less input. And uh, it's just an amazing avenue for free information, just like your podcast. So as a pediatric occupational therapy assistant, I know you always say you're passionate about sensory integration, primitive reflexes, and earlier intervention. And I wanted to know if you could share a bit about what each of those three terms mean to you. And then how did you come to specialize in this area? Yeah. So the first thing is sensory integration. It really just comprises everyone's way of processing the world around them. So we all have eight senses, believe it or not. We've got our typical five, and then we have our three hidden senses, which I think are some of the most impactful. We have our vestibular system, which is our sense of movement, and it recognizes our head position changes. We have our sense of proprioception, which is my favorite. It's really the all-grounding sense, and it helps us recognize where we are in space. I always say, but first, heavy work. And then we have our interoceptive system, which really connects to that emotional regulation and internal senses of, am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Do I need to go to the bathroom? Am I hot? Am I cold? and everything, everything with what's going on inside of our body. So that's really what sensory integration is. We can be over-responsive, so we can be sensitive to sensory input. We can be sensory seeking, and we can be craving some sensory input, and we need more sensory input. And then we can be kind of under-responsive and need more, but not really know how to get it. So that's kind of sensory integration in a nutshell. Primitive reflex integration is also something that I am so passionate about. I just got certified as a the primitive reflex specialist which is exciting. And really reflex integration comes down to things like the moral reflex, that startle reflex, the palmer grasp, the rooting reflex, all of those reflexes that we're born with. And they help babies. They keep us alive. They keep us safe. But the trick is they need to go away and integrate and mature into those higher level motor patterns and cognitive patterns. 
for some reason, they get stuck in our body in certain cases, and they need help to integrate. And when they get stuck, they can cause a variety of symptoms, like anywhere from anxiety and nervousness to balance and coordination challenges and, um, you know, difficulty with feeding and swallowing and, and really a whole host of coordination challenges. And so that's really reflexes in a nutshell. Lots of nutshells going on right now. <laughs> and then early intervention is really just that birth to three age. And I didn't really come to be so passionate about it until I had my own kiddos. And I realized just how important it is to target the sensory system early, provide novel, new sensory experiences for these babies to have to work through and process. And if there is an issue, instead of waiting and seeing what's going to happen, just getting into therapy, getting some resources, getting some tips, the sooner the better. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma. But therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit BetterHelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. So with the primitive reflex specialist, and you said you just got certified in this and you mentioned some of the different reflexes, are there certain conditions where children or babies with they're diagnosed with it, that they tend to have more issues with these primitive reflexes? Like, are there any typical disease states that you see on your caseload? Yeah, it honestly, if a child has a diagnosis of honestly anything, you know, autism, ADHD, developmental delays, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, really any diagnosis, you're going to have a higher chance of having these retained reflexes. But the research is showing that typical kids, quote unquote, typical kids are having retained reflexes and they're going into preschools and they're testing them. And, you know, upwards of 75% are having at least one retained reflex. So it's really common, but it's just not being addressed. And so that's where I think it's important to get that education out there. So what would be an example of a retained reflex that a preschooler might have? So a big one, my son just started preschool today. Um, and so it's stuck in my head, but the moral reflex. So a moral reflex is your startle reflex. It makes us protect our body and it helps us cling to mom and just alert the caregiver that we're in stress. And it releases that cortisol, that fight, flight, or freeze response. So if it doesn't integrate, um, like a toddler in preschool or an older child can be chronically anxious. They can struggle with sensory processing. They can be sensitive to lights and sounds. They can have allergies actually because there is so much cortisol being released into their body all the time. So that's a common one that most people know about that, that startle reflex. And, you know, 
anytime a child is like laying on their back and they're really hesitant and they're uncomfortable when their feet leave the ground on the playground, that can be a sign that that moral reflex is, is lingering. And then there's therapy that can then help them. What was the term you used? Not get rid of it, but yeah, integrate, yep. integrate it. That's so much nicer than get rid of, <laughs> get rid of more, make it more mature, you know? OT is a great resource. We have a course that teaches testing and integration as well, which we can talk about later on. But, you know, usually we don't address these reflexes and we can't really work on a true integration program until they're a little bit older, like four or five years old. So we just like to do typical movement activities for these younger kids, getting them outside and playing and climbing trees, you know, what we should be doing. So our listeners are parents and caregivers of babies, primarily six to 12 months of age, who are just starting that transition to solid food. So for the babies who are just approaching the six month mark and the parents who are listening and before they start solid foods, can you give us some of examples of what you would be looking for a baby this age to be able to do? Like if you were doing an assessment? Yes. So first thing I don't, I don't do the assessing. I do the intervention. And so what I would be looking for is a child to be sitting up unassisted. So usually around that six month mark, they're sitting up. Um, If they're sitting in a high chair, you know, they've got their feet supported, which is really important from a postural control standpoint. I always give the example of sitting at a bar stool with your feet dangling, how uncomfortable it is. You can't focus on anything. It's unsafe. So I really like to make sure they have a strong foundation, a strong base of support. When they are sitting, they should be able to transfer toys back and forth between their hands. They should be able to reach and grasp and then release objects. That's a really important like pre-feeding skill at this age. That kind of lets us know that those reflexes are integrating because if a baby's turning their head and they're having that associated response and they're maybe unable to pick up and, and release that item into their mouth, that can tell us that some of those reflexes might be lingering. Things like the suck reflex, the rooting and the palmer grasp reflex, those are integrating so we can have that you know chewing start to develop and we want to make sure that they're safe when they're eating and they're not just immediately trying to suck whenever they're they're putting something in their mouth or if they're if their hand touches their cheek or if a stimuli touches their cheek they're not going to turn their head towards it you know looking for more food so just some of those foundational foundational skills what sort of oral reflexes are changing as a baby advances towards their readiness to eat food or anything other than infant milk like does the rooting reflex change or the sucking reflex for example yeah so the sucking and the rooting reflex those start to integrate around 3 to 6 months old the palmer reflex, so you know when the baby, when you put your finger in their hand and they squeeze it tight and they have that death grip on your hand, they need to have that reflex integrate by around three to six months. The moral reflex, they need to be able to um, integrate that one around six months, which again is important for that feeding. And then the ATNR, which is turning their head and kind of like that fencer pose when they're laying on their back and they, you know, they turn kind of like they're doing a dab pose. That one also needs to integrate by about six months. And you'll see that when they're transferring toys and they're looking in different directions. But that's another important one to make sure that we're integrating. So those are really the main ones that I'm looking for at that like six month mark. And before we talk about the pincer grass, can we talk about its predecessor? So how do early eaters, we're talking about six months of age when they're showing the ability to sit relatively unassisted, that's demonstrating you've got that good trunk strength and the head control to start swallowing something other than infant milk. So they've got the sitting down, but they don't have their pincer grasp yet. How do early eaters pick up food and bring it to their mouth without the pincer grasp? Well, we have to remember the pincer grasp kind of starts to develop around nine to 11 months, give or take, depending on the child. So when a baby's first starting to eat, we aren't going to be giving them those small items to pick up, right? 
we want to make sure that we're preloading a spoon and handing it to them, or we're giving them big enough items where they can rake. Cause at that like four to six month mark, they're starting to rake and they have that raking grasp. So something that they can just grab with all their fingers, rake up and hold and munch on it and bring it to their mouth. So we really want to think about those developmentally appropriate milestones and how that relates to feeding. So we're not going to give them little Cheerios at six months old because they're going to get frustrated because they can't pick it up and and they shouldn't be eating something that small at six months either. So another thing that we want to think about too is getting kiddos used to different textures because in the sensory integration realm, we have receptors, we have tactile processing receptors all over our body, but in our mouth as well. And my rule of thumb is a kiddo is not going to be able to tolerate different food textures in their mouth if they're not able to tolerate those different textures in their hands and on their skin first. So whenever a child is hesitant to eat a food, we want to take it back a step and and just incorporate it during play. We just want them to touch it and feel it and get messy and, uh, and really just start to work on that integration of that tactile response there. Not necessarily integration, but the integration will come. It's just, we have to work on it through play. And that's our, that's our main occupation as a kiddo. And so messy play is a great one. Another kind of preparatory activity is weight bearing, tummy time. I always say, not me personally, I mean, in the OT world, we always say proximal stability before distal control. So we have to have a strong upper body, strong core, that proximal strength needs to be built before we can even begin to think about a pincer grasp. So if we aren't strengthening during tummy time, you know, we can see some of those, those fine motor delays down the road for a baby who maybe, you know, doesn't have that same strength. So just instead of focusing on what can I be doing to just strengthen those fingers for that pincer grasp, take it back to the basics and focus on the the whole upper body and core, and then the pincer grasp will come. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Rachel, can you talk about the pincer grasp and a little bit more about what it is? You already said when the parents might expect to see it, somewhere between nine and 11 months, but like, how does it help with self-feeding? Oh, the pincer grasp is a really cool thing. I feel like it's a monumental, not only self-feeding skill, but just you think about all of the daily activities that we do. And as OTs, this is what we do. We we analyze all of the things that we do during the day. And we're like, okay, where is this? Where is this? The pentagraph is something that we use every day. It's something that we use for the rest of our lives. You think about, you know, zipping a coat, picking up toys, picking up beads to play into string beads. You think about as an adult, you know, plucking your eyebrows. You have to squeeze the tweezers with that good pentagraph. You know, it's really all these foundational skills. So In a baby, we want to make sure that it is starting to develop and we want to make sure we're seeing it. We don't want to rush it. It's not a race to see when that pincer grasp develops. It's something that just takes practice. And we want to make sure that we're using both sides of the body. We want to make sure that we're not just seeing one side 
using the pincer grasp and the other side maybe is using that raking grasp. And so there's a very specific sequence of fine motor skills that develop. Like I mentioned, the the raking grasp is the first one to kind of start around that four to five months. We see some like radial digital grasps. You think about when a baby is um, holding a spoon, they kind of have their thumb pointing down. We think about kind of an inferior pincer grasp, which is like a little less coordinated pincer grasp. And then once the pincer grasp really is strong, we want to focus on circle fingers. And so we're, instead of having like flat fingers, we want to make sure that they're, they just, they make circles, you know, and it's not something that we want to really talk to our babies about and I don't know, force it upon them. But demonstrating that is a really helpful way for babies to mirror that. And I think anything that we want our babies to do, we demonstrate it with that positive energy and they're going to think, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Look what mom and dad are doing or look look what my grandma's doing. I feel like I need to do that as well. Well, I heard you say you don't want to rush it. And it's kind of a good segue into my next question because parents are always asking questions like, what exercises can I do to make my baby develop their pincer grasp? Is it something that they should be doing ahead of that nine to 11 month mark or just let it happen as it will happen and then help refine the pincer grasp as they move into that next stage? Yeah, I think before I became a mom myself, was like, okay, we got to work on this. We got to do all these activities. And then once I became a mom, I'm like, you know what? Let's just see what happens, you know? And I, I think taking it back to the basics, like I mentioned, focusing on the tummy time, focusing on the crawling. Generally, babies who skip crawling are going to have weaker upper bodies, weaker hands, weaker fine motor skills in the future. So we really want to make sure that we're we're meeting those gross motor developmental milestones. So that way they they make way for those fine motor developmental milestones to come. So, you know, going back to the basics, doing those big body movements, but then participating in games, like having the baby pick up pom-poms and put them in a little container. Today, my daughter was picking up blueberries and putting them in a cup. So you're working on that, that fine motor grass, but you know, it's fun. We like doing Cheerios on hard spaghetti noodles. That's another fun one to work on. You know, those poking, those Melissa and Doug poking, they have like the little buttons that you can, the little books that have the buttons that pop, working on that isolated finger, pinching and poking Play-Doh is another fun one. Picking up messes. Oh, oh, mom spilt the Cheerios all over the table. Can you help me pick them up? And they pick them up and put them. I love that you're incorporating both the food as well as the cleanup into your answers. For sure. Get them working for you. This is great. What else is important for parents and caregivers to know about the pincer grasp as it pertains to eating? You know, I think really just making sure that it is. I just think that we need to we need to be aware of the developmental sequence, the developmental milestones that come with it. We need to make sure that we are incorporating it into dry sensory mediums. So things like Cheerios, for example, but also wet mediums. So things like spaghetti noodles, you know, we don't always have to put a fork in their hand. We can let them work on those pincer grasps. Well, they're going to drop it anyway if you put a fork in their hand. So I I love that you're very pro, like getting messy with the food as well. But we we do have parents that are, you know, very, very concerned about the mess. And we do a lot of education around the importance of you can minimize the mess, but your goal here is not to prevent the mess. And before we started this interview, you were sharing a little bit about doing baby led weaning in your own family, and you sounded like very pro messy. So any thoughts for parents who might be a little apprehensive about the mess? Could you remind us about, you know, the full sensory experience just to kind of drive it home here? I will say as a therapist, I always advocate for mess is the best. As a mom, it is a little bit harder because I'm the one who has to clean it up. 
And I think that if we can encourage babies to get messy and to experience the world from a sensory experience, that in and of itself potentially has the opportunity of, you know, reducing picky eating, right? When a child is uncomfortable by different textures, when they're uncomfortable, they don't want to touch them. They're hesitant when a family member is, you know, feeding them with a spoon and they don't get the opportunity to touch the food or engage with the food. They're really missing important developmental skills when it comes to their sensory processing ability. So it is difficult, you know, to embrace the mess, but I really think that it's one of the most important things about baby led weaning in general, just self-feeding. If you're going to do purees, if you're going to do a mixture, then put it down, let them paint themselves, let them, you know, paint their tray and uh, take them to the sink afterwards and let them wash their hands and just try to remember when they are getting messy and you're feeling stressed out that you're really helping their sensory system. So if you put on your sensory goggles and you realize, okay, I know this is stressful. I know it's messy, but I'm really actually helping them for the future. That's what helped me get through those nights of like, ah, it's messy again. But I know that it's beneficial for their nervous system. So you just kind of have to remember that. So tell us about your programs and offerings and where our audience can go to learn more about your work and also to support your small business. Oh, thank you. So I think the the biggest thing for kiddos, you know, in this early intervention phase, I have a sensory milestone guide, which is sensory activities for babies. I advertise it for zero to six months, but really the activities go beyond six months. And it's a great way to prepare for feeding, for future sensory integration. Um, So that's a really cool resource, but really anything on Instagram at the Sensory Project 208, my podcast, we have our Instagram at um, All Things Sensory Podcast. Um, We have like 250 episodes, tons of great things. We should probably have you on the podcast as well. (laughs) And We have a YouTube channel as well that you can find on Harkla, H-A-R-K-L-A. We've got YouTube and then that's where we share our courses. So if you're interested in learning more about primitive reflexes, we do have courses there, more sensory courses. And then really, if you're concerned about your child's sensory processing abilities, if there's some, some flags that you're noticing, I don't know if this is normal. I do have a free sensory symptom checklist on sensational brain. And so that's a free resource. It's there's um, checklists for babies, for toddlers, for school age children, even for adults. Because what I realized in this work is apples don't fall far from the tree. Generally, the adults have some sensory quirks. And they're realizing that once they see it in their child in their their own kiddos, they're like, Oh, my gosh, this is bringing out so many, so many memories of my childhood. And so I do recommend learning about your own sensory needs so that way you can empathize with your child if they do have sensory differences. We can really help them out. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Besides baby led weaning, what other type of podcasts do you like to listen to? Well, if you're into true crime and you also dig traveling, I want to tell you about a new podcast you are going to love. The new podcast is called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that all take place on vacation. So the show is hosted by a true crime fanatic and her comedy writer husband, and he has a TV producing partner. So Slaycation brings a totally unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, what the heck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong from 
from the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, their two recently engaged lovebirds, whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended up underwater. Every episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that will intrigue you. I think you're going to love the discussion between the longtime married couple and the business partners. They also happen to be an Emmy-nominated TV producers. Every episode of Slaycation also includes humor and takeaway and travel tips that are going to keep your next family vacation from becoming your last. So if you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So as a reminder, the research shows us that the children who've had the least amount of practice with finger foods are actually at elevated risk of choking. And our feeding therapy colleagues will tell us that most of what they see in feeding therapy is preventable had the child been allowed to explore with a variety of different textures and finger foods from the six-month mark on. So your child will be using that palmer grasp. They'll be doing the raking and the scooping, and they will struggle a little bit too. Parents are like, what can I do to make, you know, the slippery foods easier to pick up? And, you know, you're making content too. You share all of these like gimmicky hack things, but at the end of the day, it's okay for the child to struggle a little bit learning how to pick up a slippery pear because that's part of the learning how to eat process and we can't do everything for our babies. Exactly. I always call that learned helplessness. We've got to let them make mistakes so that way they figure it out. I love learned helplessness. So thank you again for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk with you, Rachel. Of course. Thanks, Katie. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rachel Harrington from the Sensory Project 208. I will link all of her resources in the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash 386. I loved learning all about the primitive reflexes and especially that pincer grasp. She was very passionate about the pincer grasp, right? I told you guys. So uh, check her out again. The show notes are at blwpodcast.com forward slash 386. And a special thank you to our sponsors at Airwave Media. If you guys like podcasts that feature food and science and using your brain, check out some of the options from Airwave. We're online at blwpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.